Well, I'm sure some of you are on the edge of your seats for what are we going to do tonight? Uh, but before we do that, we'll stall a moment longer, but uh, for good purpose. Uh, we're we're going we're gonna to spend a little time in prayer before we go to the Word tonight. And uh, normally, uh, I share with you earlier this year as we pray, I try to just keep some, some similar things in front of us to pray. We've been praying just for God to continue to breathe a fresh fire, fresh wind into our cells, revival to awaken our community. Uh, and then just as far as it comes to our governing leaders and our world, that God would grant them wisdom, that they would be humble to receive that wisdom, that if they refuse that wisdom, God would be just in his dealings with them, and that truth would reign in society. And, and, and given what will transpire in between tonight and the next time we're together on a Wednesday, uh, we've got an uh, election day next Tuesday. I know many have early voted. Uh, I, just, I think it behooves us tonight if we would just spend some time praying uh, for specifically what's going to go on in the next week. Um, and I think it's real simple to pray. We pray that truth reigns, that people are responsive to truth, that there is civility uh, and in our society as things happen as they will, and that we as believers will carry ourselves in such a way that regardless of whether we are pleased or displeased or whether we are elated or concerned by outcome, that we would clearly demonstrate who our King is and that He is not shaken. So... I'm uh, just going to lay that in front of us. We'll spend a few minutes in prayer there at your tables, and then here in just a couple moments as time, uh, uh, time for prayer wanes, I will close us in prayer and, and move us into where we're going to go tonight. So uh, let's pray. Father, we all understand, and, and at least in part, the implications of all the different things that will go on in the next week in our own country. Lord, we look out and we see brokenness. We see helplessness, God. We see the reality that it doesn't matter what side of the political aisle you're on. It doesn't even really matter what side of the religious aisle you're on. Pretty much everybody acknowledges that there is um, just brokenness and emptiness across the board in society. And we know, Lord, because of who you are, because of, um, because of you, we know the truth. We know what the real reason for that is. And so, Lord, Lord, we do. We lift up elected officials. We lift up the process of voting. We lift all it up to you. And, and God, we ask that truth, truth would reign. Lies would be exposed. Truth would reign. Justice would be upheld. We ask for those things. Because those are things that please you, that honor you, that are reflective of your character. God, we also ask that you would grant us your wisdom, that in response to whatever happens, we would demonstrate a life of wisdom that is carried out in your meekness, that is peaceable, 
that is unwavering, that is sincere. Lord, and we would demonstrate to this world that you are our hope. And you alone are our hope. So Jesus, tonight as we open your word, as we walk through uh, your uh, scriptures, as we, as we continue forward just in seeking you and in knowing you, Lord, may, may our love for you grow. Jesus, be high and lifted up tonight. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, if you uh, have, have been around, we have, uh, last January, we spent a couple weeks doing, doing an introduction to worldview. And then from there, we said, if you're going to have a biblical worldview, it would really be a good idea if we understood what the Bible actually said about the Bible. We spent some time looking at that. We spent some time practically. How do I read, as a person, read the Bible and, and un- hear the Lord, hear Him speak to me? We, we spent some time looking at how the Bible stands up scientifically and historically and all of those things. We spent some time then there in the spring walking through what does the Bible say about who God is? What is He like? How do we relate to Him? And then we spent this summer and into August, we, we, we began walking through uh, the story of the Old Testament. And then we looked a little bit at the intertestamental period, and we said, we're going to take our own little intertestamental period. We're going to deal with the reality that we as biblical believers believe in a world that is seen and a reality that is unseen. Physical bodies, uh, souls, we, angels, demons, heaven, hell. And now we come to tonight, and the aim will be that between now and the end of our Wednesday nights for this year, that we will finish out and walk through the New Testament. That's pretty good for as far as what all we've covered in a year. Uh, we've, we've moved some fast. I remind you, as we come to the New Testament, the aim here is not to go as in-depth on everything as we could, but just for an initial, uh, initial time to, to at least fly over the mountain range of the New Testament and make sure we all see it and know where it all fits and how it all plays in and how the story plays out. And, and the New Testament is a lot of fun when it comes to uh, understanding the world of the first century. The New Testament is going to pick up. We're going to pick up at, at the birth of Christ, the days leading up to the birth of Christ, which is likely somewhere in reality in between 7 and 4 B.C. And you say, that was backwards, Pastor. Yes, because B.C. stands for backwards counting, and uh, that's how B.C. works. Uh, but what's fun about it is, is there's, there's so much more that we know from that, from that time period in terms of what was culture like, what is background, and those things play a big deal as we walk through. And so before we turn into everything, I, I do want to spend a little time just setting up what, what the world was like that Jesus stepped into. And it's huge because if you ever get the opportunity to go Israel having read the Gospels, you're going to realize that Jesus was a very practical, what's right around me teacher. So the world of the first century matters a lot if we're going to really understand and process things. So here's the simple recap from Scripture. Genesis 1 and 2, in the beginning God creates. God creates everything, seen and unseen. He creates uh, mankind uniquely in His image for a relationship with Himself, for to be loved by Him, to love Him in return. Genesis 3, the serpent, Satan, fallen angel, tempts Eve, Eve and Adam. Adam stands by, they give in. Sin enters the picture, relationship with God severed, cut off, but God makes a promise, Genesis 3.15, that there will be a Savior. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. You fast forward, Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, God calls a man named Abraham and makes a covenant with him. 
says, I'm going to make a great nation from you. I'm going to give your, your people a land. You will have a promised son, and all the world will be blessed through the people that come through you. you further down in, into uh, Genesis, Judah, we recognize, is, is, is prophesied as the Messianic tribe. We get to Exodus. Uh, there's the Mosaic covenant as Moses leads the people out there at Sinai. It's a two-way covenant. It's a two-way covenant where God says, I will be your God. Here's what you can expect from me. Here's what I expect from you. They enter into the covenant. You fast forward to when they are in the land and there is a king on the throne, David, and God comes to David and, and makes a covenant with David that one of his descendants will be the permanent king over Israel, the final king, the permanent king. And then we spend a lot of time there in the Old Testament where you see after David comes a son Solomon, Solomon blows it all. He ignores the word of God. He's got a, a, a thousand wives and concubines and the kingdom splits after him. You've got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom uh, never walks well. 722 BC, the nation of Assyria comes in, defeats them, and scatters those 10 tribes all over, all over, the, all over the Assyrian empire. The southern kingdom, Judah, uh, has some good kings, has some bad kings. Eventually, they will fall in, in three waves with the Babylonians. And this is where, you'll remember the map, the Babylonian period. Uh, see all of Babylon here in the green. They conquered all 605, they take the first group, 597, they sack Jerusalem, take the second group, and then 586, they just obliterate Jerusalem. And it's going to be in this time uh, Jerem, uh, the, the, um, that you've got Daniel uh, over here in Babylon and, and all the things that come there in Daniel. And then Babylon gets taken out, if you'll remember, in a single night. Then this, this whole thing is other than, uh, yeah, this whole thing, this is all, the, ignore the different colors, all of this is the Persian Empire. Just different colors represent different times they conquered stuff. The Persian Empire reigns. It's under the Persian Empire that, that Cyrus is going to let begin the first wave of sending Jews back to the Promised Land. The, and that's really where the Old Testament ends, with, with several different waves of Jews coming back to the Promised Land and setting up the temple. And then we walked through that intertestamental period. The Greek Empire uh, uh, comes through next. Alexander the Great comes through, conquers all of this swiftly, but dies young. The empire split up in four. You have what's then the Ptolemaic period, where the Ptolemaic portion of the empire rules Jerusalem, and then it goes to, uh, goes to the Syrian period, where they're under there. And out of all of that, of course, is the really bad rulers who go in the temple and slaughter uh, slaughter pigs. I think that night I said cows because somebody asked me about it and they said, well, aren't in the cow okay? It is. It was a pig. They slaughtered a pig on the altar and, and there was a, a revolt and that leads you to the Maccabean period, which is what Hanukkah comes from. And, and the Macca Maccabean period leads to the Hasmonean period where for a short period of time, the Jews are free. And then you come to 63 BC, the Roman empire is on the rise and they will come in uh, and they will come in and take control of, uh, of the Holy Land because things are going crazy. And at that time, you're going to have in 27 BC, Emperor Augustus. Emperor Augustus, if you and I were to open up our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke sets up the historical, uh, the historical credibility of, of when Jesus is going to arrive. It's going to be under it's the rule of Caesar Augustus. Uh, and in his rule... The era of the New Testament will begin. He's going to let Herod the Great be in power over the promised land. Remember, Herod the Great was not a Jew. He's hated by the Jews. He's a schemer. He's cruel. 
He's willing to kill his own children. He's king at Jesus' birth. He's a brilliant administrator, and he's going to rebuild. You'll see a picture later on that will show you the difference of Solomon's temple. And you know Solomon's temple in all its beauty gets destroyed by the Babylonians. They come back. They rebuild a second temple that's nowhere near as gorgeous as Solomon's. Herod's going to come in and go as a way to try to make favor. I'm going to come in and make your temple better than Solomon's. You'll see a comparison here in a moment. I've got a picture, but this is Herod the Great is on the throne at the time. Understand that at cultural background in, in Jewish life in the first century, everything revolved around, uh, around the family. And here's some examples of homes families would have lived in. Uh, you've got an open, an open area down below, a courtyard where, where animals are also there. You've got an upper area where there are bedrooms and, and guest rooms. This, this one's laid out a slightly different on a one-story level, but I, I lay those for you to see. Those are based on, those are reconstructions of first-century Jewish homes that we've found archaeologically. And here's why I lay that in front of you. Uh, they, were, they were wooden beams went across the top walls. They were constructed from stone, layers of mud plastered over the interior. And these are homes that would have been not poor homes because the poor homes didn't last. They're not, they, they didn't last. They didn't survive. They're gone. These, these are decent homes. And I give you this to say, understand when you read some of the rich people in Scripture, in some ways, how much richer we are. That's, that's why I'm giving you some of this background, so that we, we don't look at it and go, oh, he's talking to the poor. Well, by American standards, I feel like I'm kind of poor. Yeah, well, by first century standards, you're unbelievably rich. We are the rich young ruler. It's important to see things like this. Social classes. In Roman society, you had various classes based on wealth. Senators, military leaders, landowners, businessmen at the top. Humble people without any kind of capital, tradesmen, uh, the slaves. There was no middle class. There was no working middle class in Roman life. In, in Jewish life, uh, there were some class distinctions. The chief priests, many of whom were corrupt, they were the wealthy class. Tax collectors certainly had wealth. They got it by taking more from their own people. It's why they were viewed with contempt. Um, and so many Jews, realities, many Jews would have been average, common tradesmen, working folk, working to make ends meet. Jews in Judea, I don't, I don't have the map up, but Judea is that region surrounding Jerusalem. Jews in Judea looked down on the Jews from Galilee because that region of Galilee was so intermixed with Gentiles. So they were looked down upon. The reality is in the Roman Empire, uh, it, it is very likely that there were more slaves than free people in the Roman Empire. And it was many times, there was many instances where the slaves were, more, were better educated and more articulate than their owners because they were peoples who were conquered in battle and taken in uh, into everything from what you and I would think of as slavery to indentured servitude. Languages. It's very likely that Jesus grew up in a trilingual society and that he heard and spoke in, in three different languages. Greek was the common language of the empire with many Gentiles in the region of Galilee. Greek would have been common. It was the language of business and diplomacy. The, the scrolls, the, the Hebrew scriptures, when you see Jesus go into a synagogue and read the scriptures, those were in Hebrew. 
The language of daily life in, in uh, the Holy Land every day would have been Aramaic, the daily language of the Jews. All of these, much different, <laughs> much different than all of us, most of whom kind of know English because if you're like me, you, you weren't great in grammar and so you can only kind of say you know English. When you go through clothing, people wore tunics, probably familiar what they look like if you've ever seen any kind of Easter pageant or Christmas pageant, a garment that fit loosely from your shoulders to knees or ankles. We talked last week about girding your loins. If it was cool, you wore a cloak over your tunic. And this is what's interesting about the cloak. Again, why we give this, that cloak in Jewish society, that was the one thing that always belonged to the individual. Not even someone, not, not even in, in suing someone would you sue them and take their cloak. So think about when Jesus says, I tell you, give them their, your, their, your cloak too. Again, statements to pick it up. Jewish population during Jesus' day in the Holy Land was probably five or 600,000 people. In Jerusalem, twenty-five to 30,000. Throughout the Roman Empire, estimates ranged from four to eight million because most Jews had been scattered both by, in that conquering from Assyria, some chose to stay behind in Babylon and Persia, and others as, uh, as in that intertestamental period. They ended up in northern Africa. Alexandria was a hub of Jewish culture. Jews lived all throughout. Most were not well educated. In Jewish life, you would have had a, uh, the fathers would have taught the sons how to read and write. There would have been an observance and a listening to the Torah, the, the law, the first five books of Scripture. Most of the, the girls would have only had a rudimentary education and would have been educated domestically and what that would look like to grow up and become uh, 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 wives and mothers. Science is in, in medicine, common diseases, malaria, typhoid, dysentery, leprosy, tuberculosis, pneumonia, smallpox, all of these were common. Eye disease, deafness were common. Uh, there were doctors there were amputations, tracheotomies, cranial surgery even performed, but there were no anesthetics or antiseptics. Entertainment, feasting, singing, dancing were common. There were board games and dice games. People went running, throwing, wrestling, shooting. In many ways, like today, there's things that are different, things that are similar. Marriage, the idea of marriage in our society where two people fall in love would have been foreign to the Jews. Would have been foreign. Marriages were arranged by the fathers. A girl had to be a minimum of 12 and a guy had to be a minimum of 13 in order to be married. The fathers would engage in financial negotiations. Uh, the father of the bride needed compensation because he was losing a household worker. The price was not about the desirability of the bride, but about the wealth of the father. After agreeing the price, the couple were engaged which was far more binding than our modern engagements, but there was no sexual relation. During the wedding ceremony, the groom having finished the house that he's prepared for his bride, he and his friends would go, get her from the father's house, parade her through the streets. There would be celebration in, in every way. And just like there was public celebration at weddings, there was public celebration at funerals. Funerals were a public spectacle in Jewish life. There were professional mourners who were paid to come and cry and weep and stir up how, uh, how horrible it was. Crime, you think about the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Crime was just normal. The way one person put it, life was cheap and murder common. Uh, you, you had parents who had girls they did not want, deformed or unwanted infants, they'd abandon them in an alley. 
Punishment could be brutal. Crucifixions were normal. Imagine that as you walk in and out of the city every day. By the way, crucifixions could take up to nine days for the individual to die. It's very abnormal for, for one to die like Jesus so quickly. Social desires, you understand the society was an honor and shame culture. The greatest fear was not the fear of death. It was the fear of bringing shame. It was the fear of not having honor. It'd be better to die than to face public humiliation. And this is not how, by the way, American society is wired. It is how many parts of the third world are wired. So it's sometimes hard for us to get around certain ideas of why would that be that statement of Jesus that seems, I mean, that kind of seems tough, but whoa, that's tough on them. Well, because it's a different culture in terms of what they valued as what was worse, what was the greatest fear, what were you about? It was a, it was a true patriarchal culture and not the junk that gets thrown around today by this and that in the news. It was a real patriarchal culture. Women, uh, men had all rights. Women had basically none. Marriage was arranged. All, men in Jewish culture could divorce, not the women. And in fact, no, it's not, it's not observed that you see any rabbi with female followers until Jesus. That's why some of the statements that, that we don't often pick up on inside of the New Testament are so radical. The fact that Luke will go through and name so many female followers of Christ, that was the ultimate of countercultural in that day. The fact that who were the first people to find the tomb? Women. Countercultural. And I'm not trying to say something crazy given what the, the current way we throw those things out, but just throughout, it was a real patriarchal culture. It was a collective culture. We are an individualistic culture uh, as Americans. It's how can I stand out? How can I stand apart from the crowd? How can I? It's, that's not the first century. The first century, where you were born, what gender you are, who your father is, that determined your identity and social destiny. It tied to who you're related to or what king or group you were part of. The normal was to fit into the crowd, not to stand out. It was a group culture, which is also a very different way of thinking for us. In first century uh, life, the, the, the religion that Jesus was stepping into specifically, and I'll focus on that for now, and, and we'll, we'll come back to the other one when we get further into the New Testament, he'd be dealing primarily with Judaism, with what Judaism had become. And inside of Judaism, at the heart of at the heart of Judaism uh, is, oh, by the way, here's, here's coinage, silver half shekel, silver denarius, Judas's silver. These are various, uh, we'll come back to this at some point when we get there in the Gospels, but these are various coins. I forgot to put that in there. Jerusalem. This is a, re a rendering of what Jerusalem may have looked like in that day. Jerusalem is the heart of Judaism. It's where the temple lies. Uh, it's the city of David. Down here, you've got the uh, pools of Siloam, the, the pools of Bethsaida back here. All of these things, you've got the Kidron Valley over here is the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the center of Jewish religion, of Jewish life. The Hebrew Old Testament was used in the synagogues. Uh, likely many of them, we've mentioned this, they would have known the Hebrew scrolls, but many would have been using the Greek scrolls, the Septuagint. 
because for many that was the language they they knew. You had oral traditions that were passed down called the Targums. Uh, You had the Apocrypha, the the hidden books that were used but, but, but not viewed as Scripture and chief in the theology was that God is one. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, chapter 4, there was this resistance to idolatry because of the exile. But during that intertestamental period, there was this understanding of, of the need for a Messiah, God's promised deliverer. We see all throughout, but in that intertestamental period, that belief began to be morphed deeply to that of also a political Messiah. And we talked about that back in the intertestamental period. Why the Jews, why did Jesus show up and do all these things that so clearly affirm who he is, but they all seem to miss it? Well, because those things were morphed into other aspects and, and they missed it. You had two primary uh, uh, religious sects in Judaism, the Pharisees, who were the largest and most influential. They were the ones who kept all of the oral and the written law. They accepted the whole Old Testament canon, but were rigid with the first five books. They did believe in the supernatural, angels, demons, heaven, and hell. And they're the ones who set the pattern for what we would consider Orthodox Jews today. You had the Sadducees. They, were, they came from the priestly supporters during the Hasmonean dynasty. They accepted the Torah or law uh, as having an authority. They were smaller than the Pharisees. They were anti-supernaturalists. They did not believe in a bodily resurrection. Uh, but they were in the New Testament. They were wealthy political opportunists. They were the priestly party. But after the temple falls in 70 AD, their influence would wane. Never mentioned in the Old Testament are the Essenes. Most of what we know from them comes from Josephus. Jo- uh, Josephus, they were a small ascetic, uh, ascetic group. They had strict rules. Some thinks John the Baptist may have had uh, interaction with them in the wilderness and in his travels. You had the zealots. One of Jesus' own disciples was a zealot. These were revolutionaries who wanted to overthrow Roman power. Uh, you had the scribes who rather than referring to a religious group, they were a professional group. So you might be a Pharisee who's a scribe. You might be a Sadducee who's a scribe. They were skilled lawyers in the law. Uh, but this, here's another view of, of Jerusalem from above. And you can see the footprint of how big the Temple Mount is compared to the city. It would dominate over everything. By the way, this is a picture of the Temple Mount today. These are all, if you ever get to go, these are all ruins from Jesus' day. Down here are the actual steps to the temple Jesus would have walked in and out of. You can walk them today. The Dome of the Rock, this is the east gate that Ezekiel prophesies that Jesus will walk through. This is a mass Muslim grave to keep a holy man from coming in, and it won't work. But here is, this is fun. So this is, my, this is today. This is a reconstruction on today of what it would have looked like then. So that would have been the Temple Mount and Solomon's Temple in Jesus' day. Again, just for... See, they took out the road. There's no... Uh, here's the East Gate and going in. The Kidron, the Kidron Valley, the Garden of Gethsemane down here. This was the center of all religious life uh, in, in Judaism, in addition to the synagogue. The synagogue became a local place of worship that you would go for teaching, for instruction. And... Uh, uh, by the way, here's a comparison of Solomon's temple, Herod's temple. You can see the mass difference between, and Solomon's temple was unbelievable for its time. And then this is a synagogue where you'd walk in. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, it said, do not show partiality and, and, and put that person, let him, the, the poor man sit at your feet. You can see the benches here where people would have sat and put their feet. 
on the first row, and they were saying, the poor man, don't make him sit down there at the bottom. This is what a synagogue, by the way, if you go to modern-day Capernaum, there's ruins of the, of the synagogue from the 4th century built on top of the one from Christ. So I'll go back here, leave that up while we do this. So all that background, why? Because I want, as we, as we walk through this, I want you to be able to visualize it, to see it. I want to try to make it be alive as much as possible. When we come to the New Testament, to do this, this is on your cheat sheet. There's four different types of genre in the New Testament, Gospels. So we'll start looking at tonight. There's, uh, what you want to say, theological, historical narrative. That's the book of Acts. You've got the epistles, letters. That's the bulk of the New Testament. And then lastly, you've got what we would call an apocalypse and mixture of apocalypse and prophecy. Prophecy, obviously, speaking God's truth to today, foretelling what's coming. Apocalypse is highly, uh, lots of images and images that don't make sense to human minds like all these beasts and this and dragons, seven-headed dragons, things like that, that's what falls into apocalypse. Now, as we come to the Gospels, what is a gospel? Okay, and this is crucial. A gospel, this is not false when someone says, oh, the Gospels are, are biographies of Jesus. That can be helpful when you're talking to someone who has no clue what Scripture is, but it can also be dangerous because if you pick up a biography today, how is that biography written? Page one starts where? Birth. Yeah, maybe you get a little bit about the grandparents and the, you know, little, but, but it starts with the person's birth. And as you read through that book, how is that book set up? Chronologically. That's the way every Biography and autobiography is written. That is the way we think as 21st century, fully conditioned Western American people. That is not how the first century wrote things. A gospel is, is what would be considered an ancient biography, even though the gospels are actually a little unique even from that. And ancient biographies, uh, ancient biographies aren't trying to present a fly on the wall, here's what happened, make your own opinion. Ancient biographies take an opinion. They're either for the person they're about or they're against the person they're about. They don't attempt in their pages to try to psychoanalyze and figure out what is that person's motives and what are they feeling and what are they... No, the focus is the character of the person in question. What did that person say? What did that person do? Did what they do back up what they said? In ancient biographies, and this is key, chronology is not important to the ancients. They're not as worried about if everything's in proper, precise, chronological order. They're worried about the character, what's said, what's done, the truth of it. The way they write is, is, is a narrative style, but it's very straightforward. They don't, they don't supply a lot of description. And, and if you've ever read biographies, you know what I'm talking about. There's the biographers who are like, Abraham Lincoln was born in a log cabin. And the biographers who are like, now, Abraham Lincoln was born in what was customary at the time. It was a log cabin. It would have been about X amount of feet wide and about X amount of feet long. Likely, they used this kind of timber, but it could have been this kind of timber. And all you're like, wow, that's the ancient biographies, they didn't, they didn't do that. The ethical character is clear with the outcome being there should be something to be believed about that person or modeled by that person. There was a specific interest in how that person died because it was believed how a person died was reflective of their character. And how they died was reflective of if they should be viewed positively or negatively. There was a major impact, a focus on the legacy of a person and the ongoing impact, which is why when you read the Gospels, there is so much time devoted 
to the last week of Jesus' life in comparison to the 33 some odd years prior to that. Now, I've listed on your paper this thing called the synoptic problem. We're not going to get crazy into that tonight. Here's simply put. There is, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's a lot of things that are really similar. Sometimes even direct quotations. And for scholars, they call that the synoptic problem. Those are called the synoptic gospels. John's just considered his own thing because he's just totally different than the other three. And the question, the synoptic problem is just this. Well, which one came first? Who copied who? And everyone will come up with these great theories and this and that. Here's the real reality. We don't know for certain which one was written first. We do know all of them were inspired by the Holy Spirit and breathed out through the hands of men. We do know all of them were written by either direct apostles or people who took the direct testimony of apostles. We do know all sorts of other things. And so for the sake of time tonight, that's where we're going to leave that question. And by the way, you will find people who believe Matthew was first, people who believe Mark was first, people who believe Luke was first. Virtually nobody believes John was first. Uh, yeah, that's true. Virtually nobody. So, okay. So here's what we're going to do with the, with the last few minutes tonight. Here's, here's my aim for tonight with, with the Gospels. Tonight, I'm just going to give you a basic overview over what makes each Gospel distinct, who wrote it, what they were writing for, when it was written, generally speaking. Next week, and probably the week after, what we're going to do is we're going to take the Gospels and walk through the life of Christ chronologically as best we can place it. Okay, so that, that's the aim. So we're going to spend the next three weeks really looking at the life of Christ. Uh, but tonight, I just I want to give you that background. Tonight's just more background. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Here's the irony. The Gospel of Matthew historically and very quickly early on in church history is the most popular and most quoted gospel. Many of the stories you will think of from Sunday school as childhood, they come straight out of Matthew. The irony is, of all the Gospels, it was the one written to reach the Jews. And it's the most quoted by the Gentiles. Uh, in, in Matthew's Gospel, he presents Jesus as the Messiah. He shows the church as God's new people who have temporarily replaced the nation of Israel. He is the only Gospel to use the term ecclesia, which is the term we translate elsewhere, church. He seems to give Peter a prominence. He offers instructions on church order. Where do you find the instructions about how to, to handle and confront someone in sin in the church? In Matthew. You take one witness, then you take multiple witnesses, then you take them in front of the church. He alternates in the book. There's, there's an alternating between narrative sections and, and teaching sections. So you've got the birth of Christ. You've got his... Um, you've got his baptism. You've got his trial. Then you've got three chapters, the, the Sermon on the Mount. And then you go back to some there, and there's this alternation between there. How do we know Matthew wrote it? Well, externally, every church father recognized Matthew without exception. Also, Matthew's not exactly the most famous and popular apostle. So if Matthew didn't, if you're just going to make up a gospel, why would you pick someone who's not famous? Also, why would you pick someone who is a tax collector and hated? Doesn't make sense unless... Matthew wrote it. When you look internally, it's, it's extremely organized. There is a methodology to how it's, how it's structured. It's built around four discourses. It reflects the mind of somebody who would have been excellent in managing and knowing exactly where the money was. It's the only gospel that contains the story of Jesus paying the temple tax, something a tax collector would take note of. And it's the only account to use the name Matthew rather than Levi. 
So there's, there's evidence there. When, when was it written? Uh, likely written sometime before 70 AD. Why do we say before 70 AD? Because 70 AD is a watershed moment in the history of Israel. The temple and Jerusalem are destroyed and the Jews are driven out until 1948. The fact that there is no mention of that, no reflection of that, no hinting of that, leads many to conclude it was written sometime before 70 AD. Who is it written to? The Jewish people. The desire was to reach the Jewish people, to demonstrate and show to a Jewish person that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, fulfilling the Old Testament and make an intelligent decision there. There's an interest to preserve uh, the, uh, the teachings of Christ. You find in Matthew a unique genealogy through Joseph, even though Joseph's not the biological father. It's surprising in Matthew's gospel that we see four women show up in a time and day and age where you would never have thrown the women in the genealogy, and several of those women are not exactly savory Jewish uh, kosher characters, but they're there. By the way, it is what we call a schematized genealogy. It's not a genealogy that includes every family member of Christ's. It's three sets of 14. And here's what's interesting. Matthew's genealogy goes back to who? Abraham. Luke's goes back to Adam. Why the difference? Because Matthew's writing to Jews who care about Abraham and seeing everything connect back to the father of the Jewish nation. Luke's writing to Gentiles who'd want to go back to the beginning of time. These are unique things. It's obviously the one that preserves the Sermon on the Mount. By the way, in college, uh, every year every, at DBU, you had to go to so many chapels a semester. But they also gave you so many skips. Like it, it wasn't, you weren't playing hooky. You got skips you could use. So I skipped chapel one day and my roommate came back and said, hey, you missed it. The guy got up in chapel today and the first words out of his mouth is, I'm going to preach the best sermon you've ever heard. And we all, there's just a gasp. And I, when I heard, I was like, what on earth? I'm wow. And then the guy proceeded to word for word preach the Sermon on the Mount. And it was like, ha ha, that was a dad joke. You got us there. You preached the Sermon on the Mount. Fair enough. Jesus preached it. So I guess it's the best sermon ever. Uh, there is a particular emphasis in Matthew, and we'll see this as we walk through it in the next couple of weeks, on the cost of discipleship. It's going to cost you if you're going to follow Jesus. It's not going to be easy. The world's not going to love you. He's going he's to come back at the end, and, and again, isn't it interesting? Written to Jews, how does Matthew's gospel end? Go into all the world. Don't just stay put it, uh, closed down in your own little Jewish bubble because you're the, you're the chosen people. Go into all the world. So it's a unique, I love the gospel of Matthew uh, deeply. Um, it's, it's wonderful. You come to the book of Mark. Who wrote Mark? Well, that would be John Mark. Now, you know John Mark from other places in Scripture. John Mark's a young man that, that Paul and uh, uh, Barnabas brought on the first missionary journey. Hardship picked up. John Mark hightailed it out. And so when it came time for the second missionary journey and Barnabas, being the encourager, the restorer, wants to bring John Mark on the trip. And Paul says, heck no, he's a coward. Don't you dare let him come. And Paul and Barnabas split over John Mark. Now, we also know, fast forward to 2 Timothy, the end of Paul's life. And Paul's writing, Timothy, I know I'm about to die, yada, yada, yada. And in there, he makes a statement about how good John Mark, bring John Mark, for he's good to me. So somewhere there was a reconciliation. This is who John Mark is. He's not an apostle, but what we understand is he took down, and the gospel of, of Mark is John Mark writing down Peter's testimony. 
Peter's testimony about Christ. It is not written in a chronological order. By the way, Matthew's is not written in a chronological order either. Matthew's is written more in a thematic order. Uh, Mark's in in a different kind of thematic order. Uh, Listen to what the church father Eusebius, uh, he quoted um, another church father. This is what was said. Mark, being the interpreter of Peter, wrote accurately all that he remembered. However, not in order of the things which were spoken to, uh, to be done by, uh, and done by our Lord. For he never heard the Lord or followed him, but later, as I said, he followed Peter, who provided the information, uh, but, as, but as not to make the arrangement an orderly account, meaning Peter gave him all the info, but it wasn't meant to be a chronological tale. So Mark did not err in anything, but wrote the things as he remembered them, for he was attentive to one thing, really two, one thing, uh, not to leave anything out he heard or to make any false statements. It was one of the earliest church fathers writing where John Mark's testimony comes from. Uh, no one doubted that John Mark's writing until you get to some of the newer stuff that came after Darwin. When did he write it? No one knows for sure. It's likely again before A.D. 70. It could be as early as the late A.D. 50s. Uh, it's very possible in, in Rome because we know Peter at the end of his life was in Rome. So if John Mark is hanging out with Peter, getting Peter's testimony, there's a strong possibility it's in Rome. Uh, And it seems like Mark wrote for, for sure, a Gentile audience, if not a Roman audience. When you read the Gospel of Mark, you notice Matthew never translates Hebrewisms or Aramaic statements. Matthew never tells you the background behind festivals. But Mark will translate things and give, give background information that a Jew would never need. Because he wasn't writing to Jews. His concern is about the gospel of Christ. He emphasizes the person and work of Christ, the need for humans to repent, and the servanthood of Jesus' work. The way the the gospel builds is the first half, chapters 1 through through chapter 9, look at Jesus' ministry around Galilee, and they, they ask the question, who is he? And then it builds up to Peter's confession in chapter 9. Who do you say I am? You are the Christ the son of the living God. So the whole first half asks this question, who is Jesus? And it builds up to Peter's confession where he says, who are you? You're this Christ, the son of the living God. And then from there, everything moves into Jesus now saying, well, what's my mission? It's to be the suffering servant, to die on your behalf too. And it builds down to Passion Week where then Jesus atones for the sin of the world. This is how uh, how Mark's gospel is structured. There's also a geographic order. It starts in Galilee, First half, moves to Jerusalem. Second half, uh, there, Mark is often called the gospel of action because he uses the word immediately over 40 times. It's this constant movement from here to here to here to, to movement. Some have also brought up, he brings out the hiddenness. It's, it's the gospel where Jesus will do something great and say, now don't, t- don't tell anybody. What are the reasons? Why did Jesus not say don't tell anybody? Well, he didn't want to be perceived as a military messiah. He wanted the Jews to see his divinity. Uh, he, 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 there was things he needed to do in those three years of ministry before it was his time. But they're also counterbalanced by times where he would do things and say, go proclaim. And the key in both of those is that person's understanding of who he is and what he did and how what he did reflects who he is. You see Jesus' compassion, his indignation, his sorrow, his sighing. 
There's an emphasis in Mark on, on Jesus. Is, uh, at least 12 different times, Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man, which is interesting because that term, as far as a divine title, only occurs in the book of Daniel. But it's an interesting term that refers to the fact that Jesus is human, but Jesus is the Messiah, the divine Messiah. He is the fulfillment of what Daniel prophesies. And that prophecy in Daniel talks about, I saw the Ancient of Days sending the Son of Man. It's, it's a beautiful prophecy that comes at the end of all the chaos of the various, the various different empires of the earth. And it speaks of the, the Son of Man being the one who will bring the kingdom of God. He focuses on this. He pays specific attention to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. Now, we don't have time tonight to get into this, and it's okay. We'll do more when we go there. But the FYI, the ending of Mark is debated. If you go in your Bibles after Mark chapter, uh, what, 14 verse 8 or 16 verse 8, you'll probably notice if you've got a Bible with reference marks, you will notice that there's a little, a little mark. There will be in my Bible, there are, there are some brackets or there is, um, yeah, some brackets on verse 9. From 9 through verse 20, the reason there is some debate is our oldest manuscripts lack that lack section, but we have many manuscripts after the second century that have it. So was it original? Was it not original? We don't have time tonight to go to that question, and even if we did, I don't have a full answer for you. What I do know is there's nothing in those verses that remotely contradicts anything else in the Word of God. Other than this, those are the verses where it talks about you will handle snakes and not die. That is not a justification for snake handling. <laughs> and some of you go, that's weird, Pastor. And then some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because there are real Pentecostal churches, especially around the Appalachian Mountains, where they practice. If you really filled with the Spirit, you reach your hand in that box of snakes and it won't bite you. And, which even if that is what it meant, by the way, that is called putting God to the test. So, uh, Mark... Here, I know we got a couple minutes, there's a couple dying out, going out for choir. I will end very prompt at 7. I was told today, hey, it's my birthday by one on staff, and the, the, the game's at 7. So uh, <laughs> would you give me a birthday present? Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Luke is the longest New Testament book. By the way, here's a wild fact. If Luke, we know Luke wrote Luke and Acts. There are some who think he also is the writer of Hebrews. If Luke, in fact, wrote Hebrews, Luke authored the majority of the New Testament and not Paul. Isn't that crazy? Luke is the longest New Testament book. Well, how long is it? Well, it's long enough that it would fill one full first century scroll. So why is it as long as it is? Because he wrote one scroll's worth. I'm, I'm serious. That's not, that's not a pastor joke. That's tr history. Uh, it's the same author as Acts. Acts picks up with him picking up on who is this? We meet Luke in the Gospel of Acts. We know he's a Gentile. He was a physician. He traveled with Paul. Uh, when was it written? It's written probably likely right before Acts. Really, Luke and Acts, you really ought to, if you haven't, read, read them sometime back to back. Uh, Acts is really, in some ways, the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. They're written to Theophilus. Uh, who is Theophilus? Well, there's debate. Some would say Theophilus is, in fact, an individual, some kind of Gentile individual that he's writing these to. Others would say Theophilus is actually a term referencing a group of people. Regardless, he's, writing, he's either writing to a Gentile or to Gentiles, or predominantly Gentiles. He begins his genealogy with Adam rather than Abraham. 
Uh, what is the purpose behind why he's writing it? Well, Luke, if, if any of the gospel writers come closest to being what we would think of as a modern-day historian, it's Luke. Listen, listen to Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those were handed down to us from, uh, from beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truths about the things you have been taught. What's his purpose? Hey, we've, we've heard these things from the eyewitnesses. It's time to write these down. I have thoroughly investigated all of them. By the way, he's a doctor, so if he knew how to thoroughly investigate, he would. And I've tried to place them in a consecutive order. Now, Luke's gospel is not perfectly chronological, but it is far more so than the way the others are structure, structured. He wanted, he wanted those who read to understand the basis for their faith. To understand what's going on. He, he's, he's pay, Luke pays specific attention. There's some unique things in Luke. One, there is specific attention in both the Gospel of Luke and Acts on the Holy Spirit. On how the Holy Spirit came on Jesus, on how the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus. And you come to Acts, how the Holy Spirit comes on the followers of Christ, how the Holy Spirit empowers the followers of Christ. There is a particular emphasis on the third person of the Trinity. It's in Luke that we see his emphasis. More women are seen in Jesus' ministry and caravan than in any other gospel here in Luke. Uh, in the gospel of Luke, in fact, this is interesting, the only gospel to give account of Jesus' sweating blood, Luke why? Because probably he's a doctor. Those things would stand out to him. Those things would have been remarkable. He would have gotten that. He would have understood what was behind it. And Luke, when he finished, that's the wonderful thing about Acts. And that's where I will go after on the, on the backside of Thanksgiving um, with Luke is he just moves straight into Acts. And I love how Acts starts. Oh, Theophilus, I wrote you the first time of all Jesus began to do. The implication, now I'm writing you of all everything he is continuing to do through his body, the local church, powered by the Holy Spirit. Oh, it's awesome. I love it. Anyways, we'll get there. Um, John, the Gospel of John. Uh, John, is, John, is a, John is totally different than the other three Gospels in the way that, that it is written. In fact, many will tell you, uh, if you're a new believer, where should I start? Start in the Gospel of John. John is going to be much more, it's going to be laid out in a way that's, that's much more Greek. And by what I mean by like our Western minds seem to grasp and flow with. Uh, John's gospel uh, speaks in very clear uh, structures and, and images. Uh, it's going to be a mixture of theology. It's going to come in and focus more heavily on some aspects of what, when I say theology, I don't mean to say that the other gospels aren't, but think about how the other gospels start. Mark's start with the Son of Man, boom. Matthew, genealogy. Luke, the birth of Christ. How does, how, does, how does John start? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And he starts out with this very theological statement of understanding Jesus um, before the foundations of the world. Who wrote the Gospel of John? Well, the Gospel of John says at the very end, who is it who wrote? It says, I, the beloved disciple. I, the beloved disciple. And, and some, some may think, well, why is he always the beloved disciple? Is that a statement of is that kind of cocky for, you know, we know, we know John and James obviously had some gusto. Hey, Jesus, when you come, make us your right and left hands. 
Now, when you get to, you realize, when you really read John and understand his gospel, to say he is the beloved disciple is not a statement of arrogance. It's a statement of unbelievable humility because he realizes Jesus loves me, wretched as I am. It's a powerful statement as you move through and understand. Uh, we see that the, the beloved disciple is the first to appear at the Last Supper. He's at the cross and given charge of taking care of Mary, the mother of Jesus. He's at the empty tomb and races ahead of Peter. He identifies himself as the one writing uh, these things. The early church was unanimous that John authored the gospel, and that includes testimony from Polycarp, who is an early church father. And you go, well, Polycarp, that's what you want to tell your kid to name your next grandkid. Polycarp was a young man discipled by John the Apostle. So if Polycarp said John wrote John, there's a high likelihood he knew what he was talking about because he was discipled by John himself. Uh, this was the last gospel written. Most would place it sometime in between AD, AD 80 and 100. Uh, John is the only disciple we're aware of who was not martyred. Uh, he lived to be an old. He done, by not being martyred, that doesn't mean he had it easy. He was boiled in oil. He went through all sorts of hardships. Uh, Irenaeus, another church father, said he was the last, last uh, gospel writer to write. He seems to write for a, a very heavily Gentile crowd. We know that as he wrote, he was selective. He says at the end of the book, if, um, and there are many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. He knew more than what he wrote. He was selective in what he wrote. He's evangelistic. Why does he, why does he write the gospel. He says in chapter 20, verse 30, therefore many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's his purpose for writing the gospel of John, that you may know, that you may believe. Uh, there's there's a, a, a in there. Uh, he uses simple comparisons. There is an emphasis on signs. And by signs, we mean miracles that specifically demonstrate Jesus' divinity. He focuses on the religious feasts and festivals and how Jesus uh, presented himself at them. He seems to focus more on the Judean ministry. Of course, what's famous with John is the sevens. There's seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Jesus claiming something of divinity. I am the bread of life, chapter 6, verse 35. I am the light of the world, chapter 8, verse 12. I am the gate of the sheep, chapter 10, verse 7. I am the good shepherd, chapter 10, 11, verse 11. I am the resurrection and the life, eleven twenty-five. I am the way, the truth, and the life, 14, 6. I am the true vine, chapter 15, verses 1 and verse 5. There's also seven discourses where he's talking and explaining surrounding those I am statements. There's seven signs. He turns water into wine at Cana. He cures the official son at Cana. He cures the paralytic at the pools of Bethesda. He, he multiplies the loaves and fish. He walks upon the, upon the Sea of Galilee. He cures the blind man in Jerusalem, and it culminates in him raising Lazarus from the dead. There is a specific structure and intention in the heart and mind of John driven by the Holy Spirit to lay out this very precise structure to where when you get to the end, you go, this is in fact the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I believe because it's true. That is John's motivation. In addition, some would say there's an eighth I am statement. It's my favorite. I wish I, it's one of those fly on the moment walls where the Pharisees are coming after him. And he says, uh, this is after he's told them they're of their father, they're of Satan, and they're a bunch of liars. 
And uh, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews look at him. Of course, Abraham lived a good 4,000 years before Jesus. So they look at him, or sorry, 2,000 years before Jesus. And they said, you're not even 50. How on earth have you seen Abraham? They think they got, oh yeah, we pop, we zang you back, Jesus. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, past tense, I am present tense. And there's twofold in that. One, they knew what that meant to say I am. What's the personal name of God? I am. But there's also a statement about the fact that Jesus was on the earth at that moment, but if he's fully God, he's got to be in all places at all times. So yes, was he right there? Absolutely. But before Abraham was born, I am. I am. Just a powerful statement of who Jesus is and um, just mind-blowing to even process. And of course, then after he says that they picked up stones to throw at him because they knew exactly what he was claiming. And so the Gospel of John lays all of this out. It's unique and compares. All, all four Gospels are unique, but three of them do use some common stories. There's some common things you can compare and contrast. Um, John's is very different in every way from those in, in how he structures and plays it out, but all four Gospels present the life, death, and resurrection, the birth, life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. So I need to give you a little background so you know, so you see those, most of the stuff you can find in a good solid study Bible. Um, what's important here is you know that those who we say wrote it, there is great evidence that they wrote it. Because there's a move, ah, did, ah, they didn't really write, yeah, they did. And up until a couple of years ago, there was just nonstop consensus that they did. These are trustworthy accounts. It's important to understand the background. When you begin to understand, you begin to notice some of the unique things in each of those Gospels. And again, it just helps it stand out all the more. So now having said all that, as we walk through it, we're going to spend the next few weeks and we're going to really dive into these Gospels and we're going to look at the life of Christ. And, as in, and what I will say is this, a proposed chronological order. It's not flawless. If you get before Jesus, said, Pastor West, said, Jesus said, this happened before this. And he said, oh, Pastor West was wrong. I'm wrong. I wasn't there. We're going to do our best based on, uh, based on the evidence of all four Gospels to walk through the life of Christ. And again, doing that is, is for this sake. Uh, it's perfect how it's written. It's written how God wanted it written, and sometimes we need to adjust to it. I also understand that we live in America in the 21st century, and we're used to picking up a biography and going from beginning to end. And so hopefully as we walk through this, it'll just help us catch stuff, help us see stuff. And then if you're ever talking with someone, say, hey, let me just share with you, I share with you the story of Jesus. And then you can go into that and walk through that. By the way, that is one of the most powerful tools of evangelism today. Um, we're blessed that we live in a written culture. Most of the unreached peoples in the world do not have written language. So before you can even, not only so that means they don't even have a Bible translated in their language, but before you can translate the Bible in their language, you got to help them have a written alphabet to have a language. And so in those parts of the world, they sh we share the gospel in the same way that before these gospels were written, we shared it orally. Jesus stories. And that's exactly what these gospel writers did. Can you imagine John Mark sitting at the feet of Peter? Tell me more, Peter. Tell me about that time. T tell me how that happened. Tell me, wait, what was that like? What was this? What? Just soaking, and then that's where Mark's gospel comes. Can you imagine Luke living in a day where eyewitnesses were still alive, taking all these claims, taking various things written down, all for the purpose 
of giving you and I accurate, tangible accounts about our Lord and Savior. It's a blessing we have this. So I know tonight was a little more background info and historical promise. We'll be back in the Word next week, but I just, I'm giving you this up front so that when we get to some of these things, it can be a little more, a little more in it, a little more attuned to it, and a little more visual and in it because um, it's immersive. And that's, and that's what's powerful if you ever get the chance to go to the Holy Land. That's what's powerful when you see it and you go, oh, wow, okay. Wow, oh, wow, that, wow, okay. When Jesus looked at the Pharisees at the temple and said, you're whitewashed tombs. Well, on the other side of the hill is the largest Jewish cemetery where some of the prophets are buried. In whitewashed tombs. You're dead. And it's just incredible. So, um, anyways, let me, let me pray for our time tonight. Appreciate you being here. And we will excited for the next, uh, I think technically, here's what's wild. I think we have five Wednesday nights before Christmas. Now, there's a sixth in there, but it's the night before Thanksgiving, so we don't have church. But just let that all sink in. We got six Wednesday nights before it's Christmas week. And a lot's going to happen in between there. One thing before I go, we have 176 families who need Thanksgiving dinners. We provide the turkey through the food pantry. Uh, these cards will give you all the fixings that we need. So if, if you're at the store and you go, hey, I'm going to pick up a couple extra cans of stuff and, and give one family some things, boom, here's the card. These are out on the food pantry table. Ted can get you the cards right over here. But we've got 176 families who said, we're not going to be able, because of where things are at, to provide a Thanksgiving meal. And we've got a cool opportunity to be able to do that for very simple stuff uh, with, with, um, with canned food, and, and you, um, oh my goodness, I, I won't share stories. We, we did this growing up as youth, and I have some very wild stories of taking those dinners to some people. Um, some very, like our Sunday school teacher going, guys, just walk up the stairs, let's knock on the door, and walking out and get in the car, and goes, y'all smell all that? And we said, yeah, we did, what, what? Well, that was meth, that was marijuana, that was in a really rough neighborhood, it was wild. And we were, oh. But if you knew that Sunday school teacher, you'd never be afraid of anything, because he could... He's the guy you want to have if you end up in a dark alleyway in a brawl. I'll put it that way. Um, so, uh, but this is a neat opportunity for us to be able to bless these families and do that and provide that. And uh, so, uh, just know that information is available. Ted can get you more. There's cards there, cards out in the foyer. And um, appreciate your church family and excited for finishing out the year. And um, then it's 2023. So, who'd ever think? Now, let's pray. Father, Thank you for your word. Lord, my greatest hope, just Lord, as we read your word, that we would not... God, your word is living and active. Your word is alive. Your word is true. Lord, how grateful we are that we have written copies of your word that we're able to open up, that we're able to read, that have been preserved by your hand through the faithfulness of many men and women over the years so that we would know, just like John writes, these things have been written down that you may know. And so as we walk through the New Testament, as we do it, uh, going through and just seeing and understanding, Lord, would you just open our eyes? I know many of us are much more familiar with the New Testament than the Old Testament. But would you just open our eyes, Lord? Would you open our eyes to see it with new eyes, with wonder? 
Lord, and may our, our love for you and affection grow. So Lord, open our eyes this week to who you are, to the doors you've placed in front of us. Fill us with boldness to knock on those doors. And Jesus, to share your truth, to share your story to those who open those doors. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.